Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. This week we are off on a long journey to ancient Egypt at the moment when the young king Tutankhamun dies unexpectedly, throwing the country into confusion. We will be travelling in the company of renowned Egyptologist Gary Shaw, who has written a fascinating and elegant travel guide that takes the reader on a voyage through the history and mythology of ancient Egypt a period that lasted for an astonishing 3,000 years. The journey begins in Aswan and floats northwards up the River Nile, taking in the stunning array of archaeological marvels on its banks. With his compelling powers of description, Shaw takes the reader into the shadowy temple ruins, pointing out statues and hieroglyphics, stopping to tell a story here, to introduce a goddess there. We are slightly bending the normal travels through time rules this week by allowing Shaw a few years, rather than the traditional one, to travel back to. The time he has chosen is 1343 to 1328 BC. I hope you enjoy the voyage. I'd like to welcome you to Travels Through Time, Gary Shaw. I'm very excited about our conversation today. Um, we are going to be going to the magical world of ancient Egypt. Um, and before um, we start our time travel, I was uh, wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself and what drew you to Egypt. Um, how did you become interested in this subject? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's great to be here and uh, to have the chance to talk about uh, ancient Egypt and, and my new book as well. Um, so what <laughs> brought me to study ancient Egypt? Um, I wish I could give you one of these amazing answers where someone says, you know, I uh, there was one flash of lightning in my brain and, you know, or I saw one amazing thing in a museum or it was because I was visiting Egypt and saw the Great Pyramid uh, or something like this. But uh, for me, it was more of a, a long process, I think. It was something I was always interested in since I was a, a child. And my parents would take me to see archaeological sites in the UK when I was young. And so I was started reading books about archaeology. And at some point, I became very interested in ancient Egypt in, in, in specific. And so I started reading more about that subject in my teens. And it kind of flowed from there. So it was kind of a gradual thing and a growing interest. And eventually I just decided that uh, this is what I wanted to study. And so I went to study archaeology, but I kind of specialized in ancient Egypt before then continuing on to do a MA and PhD specifically in Egypt. Um, so it's been a bit of a theme for years. I mean, even when I was, a, uh, I think, at school, um, we had to do a activities um, about uh, ancient Egypt. And I remembered the little hieroglyphs and we had to make a little pyramid. Uh, I think we had to mummify a clothes peg to put in the pyramid and things like this kind of stuck in my brain. So, you know, I don't remember much about my kind of early school days, but obviously I still remember making a pyramid, <laughs> things like this. So there was something in there, I think, that really just loved this phase of history and this culture. And when did you first go there? 
because that must have been an, a, a, an amazing moment um, yeah. seeing these things for yourself. I, I, I first went there kind of, uh, I guess, later than most people who become kind of obsessed with ancient Egypt, I guess. I, I first went when I was studying at university. So I would have been, I think I was in my second year at university when I very first went. So I would have been maybe 19 years old. So uh, I was already studying it before I very first went there and, and saw it in person. And um, so, yeah, I went to Luxor. Um, and what was that like? It was, yeah, kind of mind-blowing. I think because um, uh, it was so exciting to be studying it at the time and I was so immersed in all the books in a really, really detailed way for the first time in my life, to suddenly go there and see it in person and see the tomb paintings and kind of descend into these the, these tombs and see things like the Valley of the Kings, you know, it, it suddenly made everything so much clearer um it's you know you could start to get a sense of the the kind of you know the the, the the taste and the smell and the sounds of the tombs and the temples and the, the feelings of just kind of just the immensity of some of these monuments and the artworks so particularly like walking around the temple of Amun-Ra at Karnak you know that the hyperstyle hall there is so immense these huge columns that are, are there standing and just trying to picture what it was like in the past, uh, as well as seeing what it's like in the present. And so that really, I think, just reinforced that I was really doing the right thing with myself, that, you know, the fact that, you know, I guess it, it's very, very unlikely, but I guess there is a danger I would get there and go, yeah, all right. <laughs> Not realistically going to happen, but it's really nice that I got there and saw that, you know, oh, this is actually, this is truly mind-blowingly amazing. This is, uh, yeah. uh, you know, even just simple things like, you know, getting on a boat and, and crossing the Nile. Uh, it seemed so uh, beautiful and amazing seeing the, 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 the sunshine and the, the, the ripples in the water and just the, the sounds of Luxor. And uh, from there, I went back to Egypt, of course, many, 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 many times after that. Uh, now, um, but still, it's uh, every time, every time I'm there and I see these monuments again, it has that same sort of feeling. One question I wanted to ask you, because the, we're going to talk in a bit more detail later about the actual period of history that ancient Egypt covers, sure. and it is in an enormous period of history, three thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, you know, they these people are really distant from us in terms of chronology. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, when you are studying um, ancient Egyptians, how close do you feel to them? How, how much do you think we share with them? Mm. It's one of the hard things, I think, about studying an ancient civilization like this, is that uh, you have to try to, rem to remove yourself from it, um, in the sense that um, the, their culture is, is very removed, as, as you say. And the idea is to try and put yourself as much as possible in, into the mindset, I find. Uh, and so studying, I mean, we're going to talk about religion, and my book is about mythology. Um, I, I find that this is the, the way in, really, into the mindset. And you start seeing uh, how differently they saw the world, but how within their way of looking at it, it, it all made sense within this kind of bubble of their understanding. Uh, and it's important to kind of try to put yourself into that space to, to see the world from this supernatural point of view where there's lots of invisible forces acting around you, ghosts and demons, but also uh, gods and goddesses, uh, these beings that have lots of power and force in the world. Um, and from us with our modern technology and modern ways of understanding the world, 
uh, it can seem quite unusual. But when you try to see it from their point of view, it really isn't. You know, it makes sense within the construction, of, of which is very much seen through a mythological prism. Uh, at least from our point of view, they wouldn't have seen it that way, of course. What we call religion, uh, what we refer to as mythology, to them would just simply be the way the world works. This is the way it is. And I think that, that leap is quite difficult sometimes, but I think it's an incredibly important step to try to really understand them because um, there's so many you know holes in our evidence there. You know, although we have a lot of information from ancient Egypt, you know, a great deal has survived. There's also, over the course of thousands of years, a huge amount that's no longer accessible or will be lost forever. Um, and so we're always piecing it together um, from fragments mythology too uh, but you know if you start seeing the world from their point of view it all starts to make a bit more sense the, these fragments kind of become a bit clearer um, now those are the things that might be a bit different and that will become clearer I guess when we talk about some of these subjects in more detail but I mean still the, the same you know parts of life that we all share in every culture and civilization is still there you know the people today are still worried about the afterlife uh, what death means where do people go and things like this? This was a major question on the minds of the Egyptians. Probably one that's a little too emphasized, I think, generally, because what's of what survives is tombs and temples and things. So this is vastly, um, there's vast, vastly more evidence related to their afterlife beliefs and things like this than the daily life. Um, so it looks like they're a civilization obsessed with death, and I, I guess they were very much focused on this. But this is mainly because we don't have a lot of information for the the settlements, you know, the villages, the towns, yeah. the cities are, are all in the same places that, uh, roughly the same places that modern Egypt is built upon. And, you know, everybody since, um, you know, uh, the times when um, yeah, the Greco-Romans kind of took over control, um, you know, people have been living in that same space. And so our evidence is much more focused to the places in the deserts, like the tombs and things like this. And so it's their, their daily lives are kind of harder to reach for, for us than it is their afterlife beliefs. And how much do you think, um, <clears throat> in terms of things like agriculture, and as you say, the sort of everyday life, which would have taken up most people's time growing mm -hmm. crops, yeah, and exactly. how, how different is that today in the Nile Valley, do oh. you think? It, is there a, a massive difference or are they growing the same kind of foodstuffs? Are they... Well, th things will have changed. Same? I mean, yeah, I mean, of course, they're growing foods that weren't uh, available in the times of the ancient Egyptians. And of course, there is the more modern techniques of uh, farming, etc. that are, still yeah, are yeah, around. Sure, but, but they're still but, dealing with the Nile rising and falling. And um, well, well, even that's different too now because um, the construction of the Aswan High Dam uh, yeah. stopped the flooding of the Nile. And so it's much more regulated and controlled now. So they're not quite at the same uh, kind of mercy of nature uh, as they used to have been. So this idea of a, of a bad flood, uh, too high, too low, that would have been a constant problem for the ancient Egyptians is no longer a problem now. But of course, uh, modern Egypt is very much agriculturally, uh, an agricultural society still. You, you will find much of it, is, the, uh, the area on the Nile has been used for farming as well. Um, and so, you, I mean, you, you can uh, kind of get a feel in certain places that yes, for you know, you, yeah. you, the, the idea that the idea that what you see uh, is roughly the same, I suppose, in the sense that there's still this clear division between uh, going along the Nile, the blue of the Nile, and then the kind of agricultural space 
beside yeah. it and then the the, the very the harsh lines of the desert yeah. uh, and i think it's hard sometimes for people to i mean so so that type of thing yes you can still kind of picture yourself when you have a clear view like that of you know okay river agriculture desert uh and think okay this is quite similar to the way things would have been in the past and it's you know sometimes so clear this division between the line you know you can put your foot almost in in a, in a field and one foot in the desert uh, you know it, it's and you uh, and this this is an important part of i think what uh the egyptians own way of looking at the world was often made up of a duality you know life and death um and you can see that in the daily lives in the sense that you know you, you've got this green field following this river here um is what keeps us alive and then mm. beside, beyond that you suddenly enter this world of what you could imagine is a death-like place of the desert yeah um yeah it's a very specific it's a very specific topography isn't it the nile valley yeah. so it's sort of yeah. yeah um okay wonderful so um I'd like to just briefly ask about the sources of information that we have, because as you say, that there is a, I mean, surprising in many ways amount of information about um, ancient Egypt. But of course, there, there's there's lots and lots of things we don't know. But can you just tell us a little bit about the sources and, and where where we get um, the things that we do know? Yeah, of course. So the the evidence we have are, is extensive and not extensive at the same time in the sense that there is a lot of it to plow through and a lot of material that's spread over 3000 years but at the same time we're kind of confined to kind of certain types of evidence one in the sense that it's very much related to the elite because these were the types of people who could afford to build a, a fabulous tomb um just in the desert uh, kind of beyond the, the cultivable land um, and these are the types of things with, with statues and paintings which and full of hieroglyphs which uh, illustrate to us a lot about the afterlife beliefs and the mythology, uh, gods and goddesses and so forth. Um, and then there's places like temples which were made from uh, stone uh, and these survived well because of that. Um, and so the inscriptions are there obviously in a very much more degraded state than they would have been you know, thousands of years ago. But we can still re use this information to reconstruct rituals or festivals, uh, understand a bit more about the gods that were worshipped in the different temples that are spread across the country. Uh, on top of that, you also get survivals of papyri, because um, these sometimes survive quite well, uh, either in tombs or in the, uh, the deserts. Um, and these can also illustrate to us as well, but these are then also very fragmentary, uh, often have survived, but not in perfect condition. This is also then weighted towards the, the kind of later phases too. So, uh, of course, the, the later, in, the, I say later in the sense of close to us in time. Yes. <laughs> that you get more survivals from what would be the sort of uh, period of the Ptolemies um, after the time of Alexander the Great, uh, when they were controlling Egypt from, you know, compared to what you would find from the Pyramid Age, which was you know, thousands of years older than that. And so... Uh, although those traditions that would have continued, it's, you know, you've got to uh, understand that what we're piecing together here is a sort of from fragments from different times sometimes, unless you're doing a very specific study of the religious beliefs of a particular phase. I mean, you're often piecing it together from fragments of information, like a sort of huge jigsaw puzzle where most of the pieces are missing. And so you're trying to kind of 
see the connections and understand. And you see threads that come through all of this. But then you're also missing... Well, also, then you have the occasional discovery of certain settlement sites, like Dira al Medina, uh, which is in uh, modern Luxor on the West Bank. Um, this was the town where the um, artisans who uh, cut and decorated the tombs in the Valley of the Kings lived. So it's not a typical settlement in that sense, because these people were quite educated in that they could read and write, which was quite unlike most people in the country. But we do have the town surviving, um, and from that we have information about you know, their daily lives, the, 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 what, but the beliefs that they had. So we have um, ancestor busts, for example, that they would have had in their homes. Um, which represented the totality of their ancestors and were used as a sort of uh, way of communicating with the gods via these intermediaries. And so we have finds like that which illustrate a bit more about their the, the lives in their houses. But again, the, we have this whole of information which is the kind of daily life of the vast majority of the people in society and uh, really what they were believing on their day-to-day, uh, in their day-to-day lives. And so um, it's scattered, there's a lot of it, but the evidence is still weighted towards one very tiny percentage of the population, which is the highest elite. Yeah. Uh, and the activity in the temples, which itself was quite exclusive. Um, Egyptian temples weren't like, um, you know, modern places of worship in the sense of like churches, mosques, synagogues. You know, these weren't places where people came together to worship together. Um, if you could, if you went to an Egyptian temple, you wouldn't be allowed really within the main section of the building Maybe on a festival day, you'd be allowed into the first courtyard. Um, but as far as going into the temple and getting near to the god, this wasn't allowed. And so... Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so yeah, it yeah. it was very yeah. much a sort of closed sanctuary, as it were, just for the priests. Yeah, so you had to be the highest level of priest to get close to the god and perform the rituals before the god statue. It's, it's, more, it's less like a church and more like uh, a palace. You can't just walk into a palace and go and march into the king's bedroom. The same way in the temple in Egypt, you, the, the god was being treated like the owner of a Greitan palace. Uh, I mean, the, the, we use the word priests to talk about the people serving in, in the temples, but they were more like servants, uh, the god's servants. Uh, they would, you know, go to the, they would offer him food, they would change the clothing of the statue. Um, and so this was all very much a, almost like a technical process that went on. The rituals had to be done the same way every single day uh, to keep sort of the universe in sense of balance and order. Um, and so you had to, as a normal, these were, this is for the, for the great cosmic gods, gods like Amun, Optar, uh, Ra, um, you know, the, 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 these, were being, these were gods that were being looked after by the priests and made to f- feel good because okay. if, the, if the priests worshipped them and offered them food and clothed them well, they would treat Egypt well. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, this wasn't a case of people came together to worship the god in that sanctuary. You know, that would be just an exclusive place. And um, the rest of the society had to hope that they were doing it correctly or assume that it was going correctly. People still went to the temples, but you could walk around the kind of within the enclosure walls in the open grounds and walk around it. Maybe, you know, take some of the, the wall off with you as a sort of sacred dust uh, scratch from the wall or maybe make offerings around the back of the building. That is fascinating because it's very different to our own um, traditions. Of the, the Egyptians were very practical in the sense. They knew they couldn't get into the sanctuary where the uh, the god was at the back. So normally an Egyptian temple, uh, 
you've progressed from what was a pylon gateway, an open courtyard, a hyperstyle hall, and then a, a, the sanctuary at the back. So everybody knew that the god was at the back. And because you could walk around the grounds, you might be able to get towards the back of the building. And so you would find that sometimes uh, in the smaller temples, certainly there's a good example of this at Karnak, of a small temple to Ptah. At the back, close the point that was closest to the god, the, clo the closest point they could get to, there's an image of Ptah on the back of the wall, which might have been veiled or had a little structure behind it, but it was a place where common people could still get close to the god and get the message passed through the wall to the god on the other side because that was the closest point. Um, so it's a practical way of dealing with the problem of not being able to get in, um, which I think is quite smart, really. Mm, yeah. And, yeah, you, there was different ways of passing messages to the god inside, like intermediary statues, little statues or big statues sometimes that were placed outside in the temple grounds where you could make a prayer or an offering and the statue was believed to pass the message on to the god inside. So, yeah, and although there was even fun things like he hearing ear stelae, which are just little stone slabs with ears on them. And you, oh, so you could tell them your problem and then... Yeah, and it would magically go to Lovely. the gods. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I think now we should um, set off on our, on our journey. Um, and I'm going to ask you the question that we always ask uh, our guests, but uh, I have to... I have to say now that we have um, allowed a slight bending of the rules because we are going so far back in history that one year alone is not it going to be enough. So, uh, Gary, if you could travel back in time, which um, period of years would you want to visit? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for allowing me the freedom to move <laughs> around a bit more in my time machine because... Yeah, a single year would have been quite difficult. So I'm going to be going back to 1343 BC, um, then taking a, a brief stop in 1333, and then jumping ahead a bit more to 1328. So it's all within a quite limited time frame, and um, it's all connected really with uh, some very interesting developments in Egyptian religion and the time of Tutankhamun and some big political changes. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to see this time. It's a uh, it's a difficult, it was a difficult decision, you know, if you're giving me this time machine and asking me where can I jump to, of course, with thousands of years of ancient Egyptian history, there's plenty of things I'd like to see. Uh, you know, I could have thought about going to see the, the construction of the pyramids, uh, for example, um, that would have been quite exciting. Um, there was a pharaoh, Ramses III, who was uh, assassinated, and we have lots of information about this, and it would have been exciting to see the real details of that. Uh, but my new book is about mythology and religion, and so I wanted to see some interesting times that were connected with some great upheavals in Egyptian yeah. religion. And so to see how this panned out using this time machine would have been very interesting, and so this is why I've chosen this time frame. Okay, so can you just give us a, a, a brief outline of what... It what what the stru political structure is of the country and like what, what what is egypt at this point what are we talking about just give us a sort of setup okay so my first stop in 1343 bc um it's a period that's called the uh, 18th dynasty uh, so it's not the beginning of Egyptian history. We're a fair amount of time into the development of the country by this so, point so of... sorry hang on a second the, sure. it's the 18th dynasty yes so that means there have been 18 ruling families up to this point 
Pretty much, yeah. Um, that is, and, that's just mind-blowing, isn't it? Yes, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, we're, we're, if you think that, um, I guess the first kings, very roughly, uh, would have been around 3000, 3050 BC. Um, Amazing. We are now <laughs> quite a long way after those initial days. I mean, we're, we're quite a long time after the construction of the Great Pyramid. We were quite a long time after that time, which was the Old Kingdom. And things have, have moved on um, quite a bit. Um, this is a time uh, that is, is within a phase the Egyptologists refer to as the New Kingdom. And the 18th dynasty is the first dynasty of the New Kingdom. And the New Kingdom starts about 1550 BC. So we're progressing through this time, which is quite an important uh, phase in Egyptian history, a time when we have a lot of evidence, uh, a time when Egypt was really reaching its, I guess you could say, its peak of its power in many ways, in that um, Egypt to this point was quite influential on, on the world stage, in that this was a point when Egypt had been expanding in different directions, coming into much more uh, stronger contact with neighbouring cultures, the pharaohs were quite powerful. Um, this is the period when we have the Valley of the Kings, um, and so it's quite a famous time uh, that people have heard of. We have great temples being built that still survive as well. So I've already talked a bit about uh, Karnak Temple at Luxor, the Temple of Amun-Ra. Um, this was vastly expanded during this period. Lots of gold coming in through uh, the control of Nubia, lots of tribute coming in through the control of parts of the Levant. Uh, so it's a very wealthy time for the Egyptian elite. Lots of the great fabulous tombs that survive come from this period. Um, and because so much of, uh, so much uh, was being created at this time, uh, lots of temples, tombs, lots of statues, lots of stelae, which bear inscriptions, um, we have a lot of information and we can talk a lot about the kings. And this, the new kingdom as a whole, which comprises the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties. Uh, this has a lot of famous rulers that people have heard of. So Ramses the Great, Ramses II, he's a king of the 19th dynasty. Uh, Tutankhamun, who we'll be getting to in a moment, mm -hmm. he's a king of the 18th dynasty. Uh, Hatshepsut, who was a woman, a queen who became king, she was ruling in the 18th dynasty. Um, Akhenaten, who we'll also be discussing, um, who reformed religion, which will be one of the major things we discuss. So th this is a time that people, I think, will would recognise in a way, because it's the times when you opt, it's the time period that you often see in documentaries on TV or that books are often focusing on. So we're kind of in that phase at this point. Uh, and in 1343 BC, uh, this is a point of great uh, reform, or should I say, restoration. Um, okay. So I think now let's go to your first scene because I know that that's um, that we're going to talk more about that. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us where where are we going and what's happening? Okay, <laughs> so um, I picked this time period, and we of course with anything in the ancient time uh, chronology that we have here, there is going to be some you know people will disagree about the years and things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have a disclaimer it... that all dates okay, are approximate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all dates are approximate indeed. Um, <laughs> So at this point, um, Tutankhamun has come to the throne. This should be the beginning of his reign. He will be probably nine years old at this time, eight or nine, more like the nine probably. Um, and so we've got this very young king 
sitting on the throne of Egypt. And it's an important event because roughly about this time, approximately again, uh, we have an important uh, stele, so a huge slab of stone with a huge inscription on it. Uh, and it talks about Tutankhamun effectively restoring the country after a time of turmoil and the acts that he did to do this. And we're told that he's in, in a palace in the city of Memphis. So we can at least, it's, it's often uh, difficult to place a person in time and, and locations in the ancient world. So we can say that you know, he made this decree when he was in Memphis, which was the ancient, most important royal city of Egypt, an administrative center that lasted for thousands of years. Um, he's in the palace of Tutmosis I, which is one of his ancestors. Uh, so this palace is probably 150 years old by this point, uh, an old palace, old city. And he's there, and he's, the, the stele talks about how Egypt had been in a state of, well, turmoil. Uh, the temples had fallen to ruin. Uh, some had become sort of overgrown. The gods had uh, abandoned the country and didn't answer you when you um, called upon them. If the armies were sent out, they were failing. Uh, so Egypt's in a bit of a state. Uh, and the fact that the gods have abandoned the country is particularly significant because um, it's so important to have the gods' favour for the Egyptians. In the Egyptian worldview, everything is a sense of balance and order, and you get this by appeasing the gods and the gods favouring the country. And if that's not happening, the situation has really collapsed. <clears throat> so Tutankhamun's restoration stele is about him and his efforts to try to restore order, and he talks about how he is rebuilding the temples, re remaking the statues of the gods that have been destroyed or damaged. And he's trying to basically put everything back into a state of, of, of correction after this time of trouble. And to me, I mean, there's always a, you know, you try your best not to do this, but it's, not, it's difficult not to sometimes to try and start picturing the scene. But, you know, you can kind of picture this kind of nine-year-old boy sitting on a throne uh, surrounded by these much older courtiers, um, you know, trying to sort out this problem and, you know, no doubt being influenced by them. So I think, uh, obviously, a nine-year-old kid uh, wouldn't have really been responsible for, you know, these kind of huge changes that were about to happen. Um, I was no doubt being influenced by the other people around him. And so, I don't know, that I, I always picture this with a sense of unease as this kid is being, like, told, you know, hey... You've got to kind of sort this out. You know, we're going back to the way things used to be. This is significant because you have to then put it in, in context of what came before. And I think it's, and we'll, I'll come to that, I guess, in a, in a second, because that's also extremely important to understand why I've chosen this time frame. But, you know, so Tutankhamun is often, I guess, sometimes dismissed in a way, uh, you know, as being just famous for his treasures. You know, they found his tomb. It's a sort of lucky event. Um, that his tomb survived almost completely intact. Um, and, you know, so he's just known for that. But actually, he did preside over an extremely important time in Egyptian history that uh, where things could have gone in different ways. You know, if, if he'd had a few different courtiers around him, if the things that had happened before him happened a little differently, you know, if he'd gotten a bit older and then went back on some of the things that he was trying to restore in this, this, this proclamation... You know, Egyptian history could have been very different. And so, so what happened before that you, you just said that, that was so important? Tutankhamun, his name is famous, but when he was born, uh, he would have been known as Tutankhaten. And so his name has changed. And this is because he grew up at a time when Egypt's religion had been 
reformed, let's put it that way, uh, by his father, or at least the person I think is most likely to be his father, a king called Akhenaten. Akhenaten was a quite unusual king, <laughs> you can put it that way. Um, at the beginning of his reign, everything seems reasonably straightforward and normal. Um, he comes to power himself as Amenhotep IV. But very quickly, he starts bringing to the front of Egyptian religion uh, one particular god, one that had been kind of known but obscure beforehand, a god called the Aten. And the Aten is the physical sun disk we see in the sky, uh, the round circle that moves across the sky. Uh, he starts um, really focusing the country's religious attention on this god uh, and sort of shoving aside or ignoring the other gods. And this gets more and more intense as time goes by. Um, so he changes his name to Akhenaten in favour of the Aten. Where do you think this came from? It, 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 presumably it must have been sort of personal belief. Mm. Uh, it seems What's to be. It? I mean, it, it seems to be the case that, I mean, it, there's too much going on here, I think, for him not to have a personal uh, obsession, I suppose, with this particular god and changing things and having his own ideas. Um, I think that this is a, a slow build as well. Um, over the course of the 18th dynasty, you get, at least in my opinion, um, the, the royal power uh, gets more and more strengthened as time goes by. Uh, and so Akhenaten is born at a pretty powerful point for the kings to do probably more than they might have gotten away with earlier. At the same time, you have an increasing focus on uh, a, a new spin on the, the, the solar religion, the focus on the sun going on, so that builds to this too. Some people argue that it's maybe a reaction to the power of the god, the power of the priests of a moon. Uh, and so a moon over this period, a moon is the, a god of hiddenness, uh, uh, but the most important god in Luxor, uh, ancient Thebes. Um, and he'd been growing in power over the course of the 18th dynasty. So maybe it was a reaction to that, although I'm not too convinced personally about that theory. But either way, it seems that Akhenaten had a lot of power and a lot of ideas. <laughs> and he wanted to kind of shake things up a bit. Uh, now, sometimes I think people take this too far. It's I will no doubt do this accidentally too myself when talking. Uh, you know, it's talked about as a revolution. I think it's more in terms of a ref reforming the religion because uh, much many things stayed the same as much has changed in some ways. He changes his name to Akhenaten from Amun-Hotep. Amun-Hotep, Amun referring to the god Amun. Now his name is referring to the god Aten, Akhenaten. He founds a new city uh, on a site that had not been used before, so a site that could be dedicated to the Aten and starts building this city at rapid speed. So he, he, he's founded a new city, he's changed his name, he starts changing the art and architecture as well, or adapting it, we should say. Uh, creates his own art style, starts uh, building temples that don't have this, as I mentioned earlier, the idea of the back of the temple being this kind of dark sanctuary uh, is no longer really the case. He has open sanctuaries so that the sun god can, can shine inside, can shine down. Normally, the priest would be offering food and drink to the gods at the back of the temples in this dark space. Akhenaten decided that he wanted to have huge altars, like hundreds of altars, spread around his temples in the open air, where you could put food and things that the sun's rays could touch. So it was very important that uh, the, the sun, although distant, 
was kind of present in the sense that the rays touch you. Yeah. Uh, and so you've got this, you've got to picture this new, brand new city with this king who's changing um, the religious focus. And he seems to have really hated the god Amun in particular, in that the word, the name Amun was being scratched away all over the place, attacked, his statues were being attacked. Um, this wasn't the case for all the gods. Um, I mean, they seem to have mostly been ignored. Some, some of them were attacked, sure, but the family of Amun was specifically being attacked. Okay. And it seems, given that then his son becomes king as a child, um, it would, that, and, and then things start to be changed back again, it, that would suggest that um, the majority of his courtiers did not agree with him. So once he died, <laughs> yeah. they, they started to change things back. So um, I think now we should go to your second scene, which is um, a few years later, not many. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't reign very long. Uh, no, he didn't. Um, so it's the death of Tutankhamun, isn't it? Yes. So we're jumping ahead a bit to 1333 BC. And this is significant then too, because you've already come through this phase of turmoil, so a sort of religious turmoil under Tutankhamun's father. Uh, then an attempt to restore kind of the traditions under Tutankhamun and this kind of time period when they would have been spending it remaking the statues that were destroyed, uh, trying to put back the names of Amun and the places where it had been removed. The monuments connected with Akhenaten were being destroyed or dismantled. Um, and so the Trump country is starting to try and get back into a state of order. No doubt with Tutankhamun being steered by these highly influential elite members of society, but also probably growing in his own individual sense of power as he got older. He gets to age 18, 19, and he dies. Do we have any idea what he died of? Um, plague. Let's say plague. <laughs> he, well, there are, of course, a lot of theories about how he died. I mean, one that was quite popular a while back was that he might have been killed by being smashed over the head. I and mean, recent studies have suggested that's not really likely. And so that's not really uh, followed. People still argue it, but it's not really followed by most these days. Uh, there's the idea that he might have been in a chariot accident at some point. Um, I mean, there are certain things that recent CT scans and DNA studies of his body have kind of brought out that he seems to have suffered from malaria, which though wouldn't have been that unusual at the time. Many people no. would have suffered from malaria. But he does seem to have had problems with his legs, club foot, um, a sort of problem with his other foot that would have made it difficult for him to walk as well. Um, a few days before his death, it looks like he may have broken one of his legs as well. Um, if the DNA studies uh, are accurate, uh, it looks like he his parents were brother and sister. But that was quite common, wasn't it? In, um, uh, not as points not, not, in Egyptian culture. Not as common as I think it's thought. Kings could marry outside the royal family, for example. He's, he's to, uh, Amenhotep III, who would have been um, just before Akhenaten. You know, he, he married a non-royal, for example. So it wasn't always the case that that type of thing happened. And in fact, it's a lot rarer than, uh, I think, this late, much, much later on. Yeah, I think that's uh, where my knowledge comes from, the, with, with um, the Ptolemies. That yeah, were with the Ptolemies, yeah. Against so that kind of... The Ptolemies were doing that, but yeah. earlier on it wasn't so common. So you might have had problems that came from that. Um, and so it's, it, the, the general, I think the general consensus at the moment, or at least one of the arguments right now, is that 
all of these factors about his health might have made him slightly weakened. Uh, and so maybe when he had this accident, I think the, the, this is the current argument that's often put forward that maybe this uh, this accident that he might have had, might, he might not just not he might not have survived it because he was just a a, a weaker, uh, ill yeah. person in different ways. And you know, there's this theory too that he might have had to have walked uh, with a walking stick and things like this because of his bad feet and bad legs uh, earlier on. But this would have been a major problem because he had no successor. I mean, he is the last of the 18th dynasty line. Uh, and so the kingship is such an important part of Egyptian politics. Uh, he is, a, he is the, the king was the intermediary between the people and the gods, the gods and the people. The gods, the gods passed on commands and decrees through the king to the people and all of this. And so it, it was just, the king is a symbol of order. He's a representative of the gods. He's, he's regarded as an incarnation of the god Horus. And he's also the son of the sun god Ra. And suddenly, this guy's dead, and there's no obvious person to, to succeed him. And so, of course, things do continue, but there must have been a lot of turmoil at the court at the time mm. about trying to figure out what was going to happen. And this would also have meant uh, they had to bury him as well. You know, um, it seems that there was no tomb ready for him by this point. No. And so the tomb that is the famous tomb of Tutankhamun now uh, is undoubtedly... Um, a tomb that was meant for a member of the elite uh, rather than a king that was adapted very quickly uh, for the use of a king. And so it's very different from any of the other king's tombs in the Valley of the Kings because your tombs are much, the, the king's tombs are normally much bigger. Uh, and they're normally and a lot is, more... Mm-hmm. Is, sorry, is that why it hadn't already been opened up, do you think? until is that why it was sort of remained intact until 1922 no no the reason for that is a bit different uh, again it seems to have been uh, i guess luck on tutankhamun's part uh, in that um over time it just got buried uh, the entrance mm-hmm. got covered up uh one was the kind of thing of the just general windblown sand and and the desert and stuff but there's also uh flash floods at various points, uh, which bring a lot of debris down, uh, and this can solidify and becomes quite, you know, quite hard to dig through and things like this. Um, and so it seems that you know, soon after, his tomb would have been kind of invisible. It would have been lost uh, quite quickly uh, by ch- by chance, really. They, it wasn't. Uh, uh, no one was specifically uh, trying to do that. But later on, you had the tomb of Ramses the Sixth being dug nearby. So uh, this is in the 20th dynasty. Uh, and the workers who were working on that built their huts on this debris that had built up on top of Tutankhamun's tomb. And so for further obscuring it from view. Oh my goodness, so it had been totally forgotten. Yeah, yeah it had been completely covered up, completely lost, completely to the extent that people were building on top of its site in the ancient Egyptian times uh, shortly That's after his amazing. death. Um, and so it's this kind of combination of factors that meant that it was never really emptied later on. Uh, I mean, many of the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings were purposely emptied. Were, many of them were robbed, but the priests at the beginning of the at the end of the 20th, beginning of the 21st dynasty started removing the royal mummies and things like this from these tombs uh, to hide them in a, another chamber, another kind of rock-cut tomb uh, in the hills in Deir al-Bahri, which is... Uh, an area uh, in the hills there at Thebes to kind of keep them safe, and also at the point that point to, to, to recycle, let's put it that way, some of the goods, uh, some of the gold and things like this for themselves. But 
it was the hiding of the mummies that kept them safe because this this was these mummies were well there, there was a few different spots they hid them in uh, but these were only really discovered in the uh, late nineteenth century. And also, I mean, it makes you think maybe there's still lots of stuff out there. Yeah, sure. Hidden. There, there are people missing. Kings missing. There are high priests and queens missing, and so there's probably other hiding spots out there still to be be found. And are archaeologists actively um, looking for? Because presumably, you know, the more the time that goes by, you were talking earlier about CT scans and, you know, with improvements in technology, we are able to revisit historical evidence and material and discover new things from it using new techniques. And yeah. um, and I, I wonder if, you know, are there sort of archaeologists right now um, traipsing around the Sahara with <laughs> sophisticated equipment trying to find... Um, hidden tombs, or, or or does it not work like that? Well, there is constant uh, activity going on in the Valley of the Kings. Yeah, archaeological missions are, are working there, using advanced technology um, to try and find um, other tombs that are there, because there's clearly plenty more still to be found out there. And this type of technology does help. It's not perfect, I suppose, in that um, you know it's sometimes hard to know if it's a rock cavity or you know, natural space under the ground or, or a tomb in some cases, because not every tomb is going to be uh, a fabulous royal tomb. Uh, I, I guess the, it's unfortunately the, the name suggests that, you know, the Valley of the Kings suggests that it's just kings there. But there are lots of things in the Valley of the Kings that aren't necessarily king's tombs. So you would get burials of, of material connected with the mummification, for example, buried there in a small like, chamber. Or, or if you're but, a very... But that could be equally interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's it will be hard to tell that type of thing from a, a natural kind of uh, space in the rock under the ground. And so yeah. th- that's why the technology isn't... So, you, so you, you might find these exciting things all over the place, but then you've got to look and excavate, and you might find that maybe it's nothing. Uh, sometimes yeah. you might find it's something. So the technology is great, uh, but it's not like a sort of hit X max the spot type of thing. And so the, you still have to explore and keep digging and, and seeing what's out there. But it, it is going on. People are doing this. People yeah. are exploring different parts of the valley. Uh, and no doubt, you know, there will be lots of great discoveries to be made, undoubtedly still to be made. Because, yeah, as I say, there, there are tombs of mummification material. There are places that might be favoured courtiers. Uh, you even find animals buried out there, some of which might have been royal pets. Uh, so, you know, you never know what you might find in some of these places. You know, tombs of princes as well uh, might be down there. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of, lot of exciting things to be found and maybe even another uh, hidden cache of, of mummies uh, yeah. that might be there, that they, that they hid there at some point uh, after yeah. the New Kingdom. So, yeah, there's, there's plenty there. Hello, it's Peter here. For some time now, we've been working in partnership with the visual historian Jordan Lloyd. And in particular, we've been telling you about Jordan's latest colorization work, which is portraits of Martin Luther King or the Beatles, landscapes of Antarctica or architectural shots. One of my favorites is of the US Capitol building, for example. It shows it under construction in the year 1846 under a bright blue DC sky. It's something that you get from Jordan's photo that you do not get from elsewhere. Well, recently Jordan has launched a new project, unseenhistories.com. Unseen Histories 
exists to bring the very best of the past to life with the latest digital tools. You can find compelling new articles there, sets of mastered and colorized images and book extracts like that from Susan Denham Wade's A History of Seeing. That's in connection with an episode we did a few weeks ago. If you're interested, have a look, unseenhistories.com. Um, well, I think we should move on to your third scene now, um, which okay. is a few a few years later. So we've just had the death of Tutankhamun, which would have caused problems uh, and him having to have a very quick burial. Uh, well, quick in the sense that they had to amass the material to bury him with, finish it off, you know, finish off the tomb, adapt an existing tomb and bury him after the mummification process, which normally took about, well, the whole process from the funeral, including the mummification, would be, have been about 70 days. And we're now jumping ahead to 1328 BC. And this is the coronation of Horemheb. Uh, and this is significant because it's kind of the end, I think, of this process that began with Tutankhamun, in that Horemheb is not a man of royal blood. And so I mentioned earlier that Tutankhamun was the last of the 18th dynasty kings. You know, he had no surviving children. And so after him, the kid throne went to a man called Ai, who seems to have been somehow connected to the royal family. He was certainly a high member of the elite. Um, he might have been the brother-in-law of King Amenhotep III, for example. So he seems to have had some connections. And some even think he was the father of the famous Queen Nefertiti, the wife of Akhenaten. Anyway, he became king, but he was very old. He only lasted about three years. So again, turmoil just kind of continues here. And so suddenly the crown goes to this military general, a man not of royal blood at all, a guy called Horemheb, who seems to have been influential under Tutankhamun as a military man, um, was even given this kind of role as deputy to the king, uh, which kind of lined him up in some ways uh, as a successor, a kind of almost named successor for Tutankhamun, at least this is the way Horemheb presents it. But you know, this was a man who was not born to be king. Uh, in reality, you know, he was a, he has kind of obscure origins, in fact. We know that he, he had built a tomb for himself at Saqqara, this uh, major burial site near modern Cairo. And so he, he had a private tomb there for his life as a non-king. And then, of course, he becomes king later on. And his coronation inscription is quite interesting. He, has a, he had a statue uh, of him and his wife, which is now in Turin. And he, he's at pains to point out how he became king on there. Uh, where it talks about how the, the gods uh, had always wanted him to be king. Uh, it had been ordained since he was a child, but they wanted him to have a bit of a career, effectively, beforehand, before they <laughs> revealed him in this way. And, you know, he, he, he served the king well in the palace. And there's an interesting reference to the king. I think it's the palace uh, getting into anger of some kind. And Horum had been able to, to appease and calm the palace down. And so you have the sense of him kind of, you know, being a, a, a voice in the palace that kept um, kept things smooth and running nicely. He then ends up becoming king, and this seems to be because it became the right moment for the, the gods to proclaim him this way, that he was the chosen successor. And so he goes to Luxor, ancient Thebes, and he takes part in what was the Opet Festival, a great celebration connected with kingship. Uh, and he comes before the god Amun, and so... The god Horus had helped, chosen him to become king, a type of Horus from his hometown. And Moon is accepting him as king. After becoming crowned, he starts usurping monuments. 
He starts taking over the monuments of Tutankhamun, scratching Tutankhamun's name away from things, putting his own name on it. He starts continuing the dismantling of anything from Akhenaten and uh, that the city of Armana. Uh, was uh, that a normal thing to do, to start to scratch out the name of your predecessor? Um, it does happen more often than um, it uh, probably should have done. Kings did sometimes take over the monuments of their ancestors. Ramses II, the famous Ramses II, the great, uh, he did this a lot. Uh, and you could, you could one, one argument is that this is updating <laughs> the yeah. monuments. Uh, another one is that, frankly, they were just stealing these old monuments and saying it was theirs. Did he then found a dynasty? Obviously, the, these inscriptions, he's very much, as new kings always have to, sort of setting out his credentials and trying to establish himself. Um, and, and did he, was he successful? Did he found a dynasty? He doesn't start his own dynasty. He's kind of a transition point. He's normally regarded as the last king of the 18th dynasty, although he's not of royal blood. But what he does do is he selects an important military general, a man called Ramesses, to become the next king. And Ramesses, I mean, Horemheb himself doesn't have any surviving children, but Ramesses already had a, a son and a grandchild, I think, by this point. And so what Horemheb is seeing here is the fact that there needs to be stability. Yeah. And so he's, he's setting up a new line of military men. And he's effectively kind of then ensuring that, I guess the Egyptians will call it Mart, the sense of order in the universe, in the cosmos, uh, was kind of going to be established after his death. And so this starts the 19th dynasty, which is a new phase in the time of Ramesses to Ramesses the Great and all this stuff. But at the same time, what Horemheb does before that is by kind of removing Tutankhamun's name and usurping these monuments and things like this, uh, he effectively starts erasing this phase from history. Um, so in the official records, let's say, you get Amenhotep III and then you get Horemheb. And so you're erasing from history Akhenaten, King Ai, uh, Tutankhamun, and so these Amarna period kings, and there's a couple of others too around there, like Senkare, these guys get removed. Uh, and it's complete erasure. The, the city of Amarna is flattened. Uh, you know, the stonework is reused, reused elsewhere. Um, and so there's this real attempt to kind of destroy this kind of phase of history. It's quite ironic karma then, isn't it, that Tutankhamun's tomb is the most famous, you know, in, in the modern world, by far the most yeah. famous. When you think about ancient Egypt, you, that's what you think about is that death, death mask, is that what it's called? Yeah, the golden mask, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting that, yeah, this despite the, effect, the attempts to kind of erase him from history, he is now the most famous of all the of Egyptian all kings. Yeah. That's a nice twist, and I think. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's yeah, it's 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 nice um, that a king that reigned quite a short time, you know, is, is so famous now, and it kind of helps us to kind of recapture this lost lost period mm. uh, in history. Um, but as I, I pointed out earlier, this this time is not just about the treasures that have survived, but it's also about the kind of changes in society. You know, end of a dynasty, the beginning of a new one, the erasure of a whole period the reforms of a religion that were then gone back on under Tutankhamun and the attempts to kind of restore the old ways. It's a very exciting period of history, but there are so many problems with it because, because of these conscious attempts that the Egyptians had to try and remove this part of history 
from from ex existence. <laughs> um, so not only do we have the normal problems of the lack of evidence from thousands of years ago, we have the fact that they were consciously trying to remove this period. <laughs> yeah, that definitely must add another layer of um, challenges to the yeah. historian. And it's, but it's from a religious and mythological point of view. It's also just exciting to see how, because uh, how, how how the Egyptians were really wanted to go back to the old ways. You know, Akhenaten had an experiment. You know, he, he tried to kind of ignore the other gods and create this this one focus on a god called the Aten. Clearly, it failed. Uh, and yeah, the, these people that were even serving him, who then went on to serve Tutankhamun, probably were true believers in the sense that they, 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 they must have been the ones involved in trying to go back to the old ways too. Mm. And so the, the power of the old religion, the power of this way of looking at the world, of the traditional gods, was such that everything went back to the way it was. Yeah. Uh, and Tutankhamun was the king during this phase. That was this, uh, this was an important moment. Um, and so it's good to emphasise that yeah. as well as so death and treasure. Fascinating. And, and yeah, and I think, you know, People, well, I, I'm not. I don't know much about ancient Egypt, and when you think about it, you sort of think it was one period. But of course, it, it was, you know, as we've said, thousands of years. And um, so, I think there's there's really one question left that I have to ask you, uh, which is if you could have picked something up from one of these um, places that we've been visiting today, what would it be? <laughs> Yeah, so Tutankhamun was buried with a lot of uh, staffs, which can also be interpreted as, as walking sticks. Mm -hmm. um, there's the potential that he did have trouble walking. And so um, it would have been interesting, I think, to maybe hold one of these, uh, one that he'd used in life. And the, there is an example of one like this in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Uh, it's, to me, it's more impressive than all of the treasures. I'd like to take something like that from if I could meet him in, in ancient times. Say, can I can I borrow this stick you're using? Because um, the one that's in the museum is really interesting. Um, it's 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 not a treasure in the sense that it's not a golden mask or a piece of jewelry. It's a simple reed stick, and it's got a little uh, golden cap put on it uh, with an inscription on it uh, that says the king cut this uh, reed with his own hands. When he was visiting this particular location and so it's it's a very personal object you know something that he needed maybe possibly if the theories are correct about him walking that shows a, a connection with the person yeah I and think, the magic in his life. that he would have touched it i always think that yeah, exactly there's something yeah. about that when you're handling a his something you know a piece of evidence from history that the idea that that other person their hand was on it as well i think that's there's something really magical in that thought yeah, I think that's a, a really wonderful choice. Um, and I've so enjoyed talking to you today and I cannot describe how beautiful your book is um, to the listeners, <laughs> but I urge them to go go out and buy it. And it's full of these absolutely beautiful illustrations um, and also really useful date charts and things like that, which I absolutely love a date chart and, and you need it with this huge period of history so um yeah it's beautiful it would make a great present um thank you so much gary for thank coming you. on i've really enjoyed our conversation today thank you very much it's been great to, to chat with you that was me violet moller chatting to gary shaw the other day about his inspirational book egyptian mythology a traveler's guide from aswan to alexandria 
which transports the reader into the strange and wonderful world of ancient Egypt. It is a truly beautiful book and it would make a great Christmas present. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. We'll be back next week, but until then, goodbye. <laughs>